is from two places in the book of Genesis, uh, from the beginning and really from the beginning and the end of Jacob's life. Uh, first from Genesis 27 and then uh, from Genesis 48, and so follow along with me if you would in the worship folder that you have there. Uh, it will also be printed on the screen behind me as we read together these two stories from his life. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old, and I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. Bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. But then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so he, by implication not Esau, went into his father and said, My father, he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him, and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. He said to his father, Let let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who is it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came in and have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And then towards the end of Jacob's life, when Israel, who is Jacob, renamed, saw Joseph, who was his son, saw Joseph's sons, his grandsons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel, Jacob, stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we are in the middle of a series from this book of Genesis, which contains stories that are just rich, like these two are. And as we've been looking at this, this, this book and these series of stories that come to us, we've really been summing up what they're trying to teach us as God's people in this way. 
to say that God has a mission and we are the instruments for that mission. And this book was written to the nation of Israel who, in the first place, were the instruments by which God meant to carry out his mission in the world. It has come to us, the descendants spiritually of the nation of Israel, for the same purpose. Okay, so that's the lesson we're supposed to learn from this book. It begins with God creating Adam and Eve as his image bearers, you might remember this, and then tasking them with a mission to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to bring the kingdom of heaven to the earth and turn the whole world into God's glorious palace. But of course, Adam and Eve, we saw, failed, and as a result, the world was cursed. Death came, and with death, sickness and disease and all kinds of breakdown, emotional and psychological and even physical breakdown that every single one of us in this room this morning has experienced in one way or another. Uh, The breakdown of human community so that there's an escalation of violence that happens there in the beginning parts of Genesis in the world and oppression which causes poverty and injustice and these sorts of things and even the breakdown of the natural world which results in typhoons that kill thousands of people. So much so that God... uh, is led to wipe the world clean in an act of judgment, which was the flood, and then with Noah and his family to start the process of recreating all things and making them new. So God's mission after the fall is to save and to heal humanity and human community and even the earth to remove the curse of sin from the earth. And Noah, there in Genesis 9, is to be his instrument, right? Noah is the one through whom God's going to do this great work of restoration. And then from Noah, the responsibility is passed along to Abraham, and then to Abraham's children, Abraham's son Isaac, and then, as we'll see this morning, from Isaac, and through Isaac, to Jacob, Isaac's son, and then through Jacob, to the nation of Israel, to whom these stories are being written. Now, as we've gone through this, we spent a couple of weeks on Abraham. This morning we're on Jacob. You might say, well, what happened to that Isaac? What, you know, why, why didn't we really talk about Isaac? And it's because Genesis doesn't really say much about Isaac, except to highlight the congruity between what God has called Isaac to in his life and what he called his father Abraham to. So really the only reason these Isaac narratives exist is to just affirm the fact that God's going to use him the same way he promised to use Abraham. Okay, so that's why we come this morning all the way, we kind of skip a generation and come all the way to Jacob. Now remember, Moses is writing Genesis to the nation of Israel on the plains of Moab as they prepare to go into the promised land. They've been rescued out of slavery in Egypt, and God has saved them because he has a mission, and they are the instruments through which he intends to accomplish that mission. The nation of Israel was to be a missionary people. They were to be the conduit through which God's power and wisdom in salvation would go to the ends of the earth, okay? And so what we learn, again, is God has a mission, and he has a people for that mission, I've said it this way in your worship folder there at the very beginning in your introduction. The church doesn't have a mission as much as God's mission has a church. In other words, if we are the people in the line of the nation of Israel, that means that the church doesn't exist for itself. We don't exist for ourselves. We exist for one purpose, the mission. So as we think about a city, and what it means for us to say is we have over and over again in our documents and from the pulpit and everywhere, not the pulpit, we say it from the music stand right? Whatever, we, what, however that would work. We believe that we have been called and sent to the city of Winter Haven and to other parts of Polk County, and the implications for saying that are huge. 
And they, they, they dictate what kinds of things we decide to do and not do and how we do them and how it feels to do church, okay? And let me just give you one metaphor for what I mean as we think about just mission this morning. And I, 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 uh, I thought about it this way. I wanted to say to you uh, that in light of all of these stories we're reading, the church is not a destination. It's a staging area. Right? You know what I mean by that. A staging area is the place where troops and weapons and equipment and materials are gathered and assembled before going out into battle. And so the goal, see, the goal of God working and calling you toward a life of mission is not to get you to the church. The goal is to get you here in order to equip you in order to get you back out there. God is not interested in getting people necessarily to the church. He's interested in getting people through the church and back into the life he calls them to. And that profoundly affects the way we we do things. Okay? Now, there's a clear obstacle. There's an absolutely clear obstacle this morning to these things that we're talking about. And it's just this. You would say, you know, this idea of mission, right? You keep talking about God has a mission. Well, I'm just a banker, right? Or I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Or probably the most natural, and I I really want to speak into it, I'm just a teenager. And here's what I want to say. Those statements are statements of absolute unbelief. And the way to overcome those kinds of thoughts or that kind of way of thinking about your life is to see what we see in these two stories in Jacob's life. This blessing. The blessing that comes. Okay, we have a picture of two ceremonies in which the older generation is passing a blessing on to the next generation. In order to, to really uh, get busy with the work God has called us to, we have to, two, two things we have to know from, from these texts, okay? I only have two points this morning. Caught, don't think that means the sermon is going to be any shorter than it normally is, okay? Just, a, just I try to be honest and upfront. I want you to know what you're going to get. Two things. We have to know what this blessing is. And what it means to be blessed, and then we have to know, we have to know, and we have to see how you get it. So, what is it, and how does it come to you? Okay, and those are our two points this morning, and I just want to dive into both of those things and, and work, work, you know, work around them together. Okay, so first, let's just talk about what we see here. This key to to the living, overcoming our unbelief, and seeing that we really do have a huge part to play in the world according to God's call upon our lives. The first thing is, is you have to understand what this blessing is, and it's something really strange to us, right? I mean, what's happening here? What is this, this blessing? And why is it so important? Is anybody else confused? How is it that Jacob could steal it from his brother? And there's nothing left. Or there's very little, the scraps are left for Esau at the end of that, right? Okay, so let's talk about this. Now, what you'll notice first is that if you've been paying attention as we've been going along, this, this word, blessing, is a very important word in the book of Genesis. God has done this over and over and over again. Up to this point, in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that he created Adam and Eve, and the very next thing he did was what? He blessed them and told them, be fruitful and multiply and so on. In Genesis 2, we're told God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. In Genesis 9, he blessed Noah in the same way that he blessed Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. In Genesis 12, he comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you a nation. So over and over again, we see this idea of God coming and blessing people. And in fact, in these stories in Genesis 26 through 36, 27 times we find this word blessing. So what is this blessing? And what does it mean to be blessed? God blessed Adam and Eve. He blessed Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. So what's the promise 
contained in the blessing. Now, let me tell you what it's not first before I tell you what I think it is. It is not the promise of material or financial gain. It doesn't mean that everything's going to go right in your life and nothing will ever go wrong. And I have to say that, unfortunately, because there are pastors and churches that teach that, that if you obey God, you'll have the blessing, which means you'll drive a BMW. And it's obscene. Preachers on TV telling people, send me money and you'll receive the blessing. If, you get, if you're sick, you'll get healed. If you're in financial distress, you'll become rich. And what we've done is we've co-opted the biblical language and created a theology that is the worst kind of narcissism that would say God's goal for your life would be to make you wealthy and give you everything you need as if he's Aladdin's genie. God's goal for your life is not to give you everything you need. God's goal for your life is to get you on mission. And here and everywhere in Genesis, God blesses to turn people into a blessing. God blesses you to make you a blessing. And all those places I mentioned a minute ago, Genesis 1 with Adam and Eve and Genesis 9 with Noah and Genesis 12 with Abraham and on and on it goes. And here in these stories about Jacob and Esau, when God blesses, he's setting the person or the family apart for a special purpose, for a mission, and then affirming them and resourcing them for that work he's called them to do. So really what what is meant here, what we see here in these two stories is when this blessing comes, it really is a commissioning. And maybe the best illustration is in Genesis 24, which we didn't, we just don't have time to do every chapter. We'd be here until, until I had gray hair. Well, maybe I'll have gray hair sooner rather than later, but uh, we'd be here a long time. And in Genesis 24, a servant of, of Abraham's goes away to find a, a wife for his son Isaac, and he comes across Rebekah and her family, and he talks Rebekah into coming back with him to marry this man she's never met. And we're told there in Genesis 24, verse 60, that her family sends her away, and as they're sending her away, they bless her, and they say to her, our sister, may you become thousands upon thousands. In other words, they're commissioning her away from the family toward the work that God has obviously called her to. And in a sense, that is what this blessing is. It's a a commissioning. It's a divine authorization for a particular work and then the promise of divine empowerment for that work. Let me say that again. Divine authorization for a particular work and then the promise of divine empowerment for that work. So when God blessed Abraham, for example, he was saying, Abraham, you're the man for the job. I believe in you, you're going to be great, and don't worry, Abraham, I'll go with you, and I'll be with you to take care of everything. See, God's putting his stamp of approval upon Abraham's work, and then promising to come alongside of him in his weakness, and make him fruitful and successful in that work. See, it's divine authorization, and then the promise of divine empowerment. But there's a second part of this that I don't want us to miss, and I want to say it this way. We are meant to experience this authorization, this affirmation, and resourcing in a personal, subjective way. God means for us to experience it and to have it in our hearts. And I thought, I'm struggling to find a way to say this because I I don't know that I could characterize for you what a life looks like, but I know what it looks like for somebody to live without that. And it's Jacob. See, one of the things that becomes obvious as you read these texts is that Jacob is desperate for blessing. And we're told that Isaac favors Esau. Esau's his favorite. 
He gets all of Isaac's time and attention. Isaac dotes on him, and Jacob grows up in the tents with the women, we're told. And that's meant to be, a, you know, a slight. Jacob um, is neglected by his father. Esau has his father's love and affection and blessing, and Jacob does not. And it's had, it, what, what happens is it wreaks terrible impact upon his life. He suffers from what we would call an inferiority complex, and as a result, he cheats his way through life. He becomes dishonest and a schemer. And that's part of what makes this passage in Genesis 27, for me anyway, so poignant, is that it's a picture of something that uh, every single one of us need. We all have been created by God to we need, have a need for the blessing of the firstborn. We all, in other words, look and long for somebody to come to us and to say, you're great, you're going to be great, I believe in you, you know, and I'll be with you to help you, because no matter who you are, no matter what it is you're doing in your life, we all have doubts, and we're all insecure, and we all worry about whether or not our weaknesses and our sins are going to get in the way. And so like Jacob, most of the time, uh, we are desperate for this sense of somebody to come and say, it's going to be okay. You're going to do great. I believe in you. And to be encouraged by those words and to find empowerment in them for the work that we've been given to do. But like Jacob also, most of us, most of the time, live without a real sense of the blessing. And so we do what Jacob did here in order to steal it from people. What did he do? Do you see? What's he do? He hides. He dresses up as somebody else. He impersonated Esau in order to get the words from his dad that he'd always wanted. And it's a picture of the way we all live. Uh, What I think is being revealed to us here is that we all are doing this. We hide. We don't let people see the flaws. We don't let people see our weaknesses. We don't let people see our fears. We don't let people see the dark parts of our lives. Instead, we hide all the ugly stuff, and instead we dress up. We dress up and we go to church and we act like everything's okay, or we dress up on Facebook or social media so that we'll get the thumbs up, right? Did you see that Facebook's going to mess with the thumbs up thing and people are freaking out? Did you see that on the news this week? Right? Because, right, that thumbs up, I've talked about this before, but it's so profound, that thumbs up. See, that's, that's it. That's what we're after. That's the, that's the blessing. Right? And so we do all these things, and we, we create this persona that people can see, and what we're doing is we're dressing up because what we're hoping is, uh, you know, and we check, man, I only got 12 thumbs up on that. That wasn't a very good post. That one, wow, 60. Well, there you go. I got to do more of that, whatever it might be. And this is what we do. And what I want to say is it doesn't work. It leaves us just as desperate for the thumbs up tomorrow. I mean, think about the story that we're looking at here in Genesis 27. Jacob got what he'd always wanted. His father was blind, uh, but, he, but he got his father's love and blessing. But because his father was blind, the love and the blessing that he got, it wasn't for him. It wasn't him that Isaac was loving. Isaac thought he was loving Esau. And so though, even, though, even though Jacob got the blessing and the love that he has always wanted. It wasn't intended for him because it wasn't the real him. It was the him he had carefully crafted to present to the public. So it didn't mean anything. He got his father's smile, but it was a smile that was meant for Esau, not Jacob. Now, the second reason why I know, why I say that this blessing, this sense of the authorization for the work you're doing and the affirmation and the resourcing for that work is something you're meant to experience subjectively is not only because of what I see in Jacob, but it's it's... Also, uh, because of the way that it comes in both of these stories, that there's a ceremony. Do you see that? Do you notice that? There's a, this is a formal setting. It's, it is the father, and this is a big deal, dads. This is the father that speaks for God into the lives of these children. 
uh, that speaks the blessing into the lives of his kids and, and his grandkids. And so the blessing might be there, right? But it's, this is the way that it comes. This is the way it becomes real to our hearts. And we begin to experience it through ceremonies like this. And through the words that other people speak over us in formal settings in particular. And particularly words that parents speak over their kids. I've had two experiences in my life. Uh, where that, had, that have really driven this home to me, that were really profound for me. And the first was when I was a young man in ministry. One of the first times I ever preached, actually, I think, in my home church here in town, when I was done with the sermon, there was a man in the church who was a patriarch of the church uh, who, I mean, you know, he basically could do, you know, he basically had sway over the people. And uh, he interrupted the service uh, at the end, which was very uncustomary, and called me forward. And he, he was a, he's a uh, converted Jew and had a little bit of a Pentecostal bent to him. So he was a really interesting man and neat man. And uh, so he interrupts the service and he calls me forward and he lays his hand on me and he begins to speak a blessing over me. And I, I, I wish that I could tell you I remember what he said. It was, I'm sure, beautiful and profound, but the, the words are lost to me now. But it was something like, God's going to use you powerfully, I believe in you, and then may God bless you, and so on. And uh, it, it was very, very powerful for me. The second uh, experience uh, was um, a man who was an interim pastor at the same church preached a sermon on the idea of blessing and how powerful the words we speak to one another are, particularly in settings like this and these formal kind of ceremonial places. And he, he, I remember at the end of the service, very, this is just my, my Baptist, the Baptist church I grew up in was a little bit, we were a little, you know, we weren't exactly, what's the word I would use? We were just kind of set in our ways. And I remember this man who was an interim who didn't know us very well had us at the end of the service stand up and we were to go to one another and kind of like grab a hold of one another and look one another in the eye and like speak these words of, you know, blessing to one another. And I remember how uncomfortable it was for everybody. Um, but how powerful the idea was for me personally. And uh, so for many years now, uh, kind of a, a product out of some of the things that I've read and, and thought about and things like this, uh, one, of the, one of the practices in our home that we've done, um, because of how powerful these kinds of blessings can be, after dinner on Saturday nights usually in our house, when we're all, when we're all there and we don't have something else going on, after dinner, we try to make it a special dinner. And after dinner, I typically... Uh, we'll take some anointing oil, and, um, and I'll go around the table, and what I do is I usually start with the youngest kid and then move my way up to my wife. And uh, I'll, I'll anoint all the kids with oil, and then I'll put my hands on them, and I'll speak a blessing over them. And so I'll put my hands on their head, and, you know, some of them are teenagers now, so I'll, like, make them look me in the eye. You know what I'm saying? Like, hello? Eye contact would be good right now. Right, make them look at me, and then I'll say something like, you know, I'm so glad you belong to me. What a privilege it is to be your dad. And I love you. And I think you're great. And I think you're going to do great things. And I believe in you. And then usually I speak the benediction over them that I, that I speak in church each Sunday. And the reason we do that in our family is because these symbolic actions like that have genuine and abiding power. That's what we learn here. And spoken words, particularly the words of parents to their children, shape our lives. They give us a subjective experience of the blessing, that we are loved, that we are important, that we've got work to do, and that we can do it because somebody has seen something in us and called it out of us and has told us they would come with us to help us get it done. 
And see, what I want you to see is it's more than just affirmation. It's a commissioning. So the goal, the goal in these is not a boost of the ego. It's to set a traje- trajectory. I can't say that word. Trajectory for a person's life towards the fulfillment of their calling. In other words, it's an accurate discernment of who this person is, who they are, what God's doing in their lives, who they're becoming, what the call of God on their life is, and then choosing powerful words to affirm that and then to call out of them this calling and encourage and empower them towards it. So one of the things that some of the men in our church have done with our boys is we've had ceremonies for our boys when they're around uh, the, the age of 13 where we gather a group of men around them and we take the time to talk to them about masculinity and then we call them towards manhood. Because there's something powerful about these kinds of ceremonies and these kinds of things. Maybe the most direct application for us is every Sunday at the end of the service, we conclude our service with a benediction, which benediction means good words. I raise my hands over you, and they are to be, it is a commissioning. It's a blessing. It is the, it is the mediating of God's blessing upon the life of all those who have a faith in Jesus Christ, calling out our potential as a people for the mission God is sending us into commissioning. And so as we think about this, there's all kinds of ways that we can apply this, right? We can apply it personally in our family lives. We can apply it in the way, you know, we deal with our children in particular. We can apply it to the way we have, you know, the way we use our words. That words have power. They shape who we are. We have to use them carefully and not rob people of their words, okay? But, but the second thing, see, I want to move, rush right into the second point. Because if that's what the blessing is, if the blessing is divine authorization, and the promise of a, di- a divine empowerment of a, of a spoken word coming into your life, the subjective personal experience of the Father in heaven saying to you toward the work he's called you to do, I believe in you, you're going to be great, and I'm going to go with you, I'm going to help you, and we're going to get it done together. If that's what it is, but then the second point, and the real point of both of these stories, is what we see here, that the blessing doesn't come to the strong and the moral, it comes to the weak and the broken and the morally bankrupt. The blessing flows out of grace. And the reason we're dressing up is because we're wrongly believed that the blessing comes only to the winners, to the strongest and the smartest and the prettiest and the most talented and the most successful people. I mean, those are the people that our culture celebrates, aren't they? But the Lord consistently puts the weak ahead of the strong. Okay, first, let's look at the family that we're dealing with here. This is the family God has blessed. I mean, this is the family through whom the promised seed will come, who will heal and save the world. Are you kidding me? You have Isaac, who is, let's be honest, a terrible father, right? He shows favoritism to one son over the other. He's willful. He's been told at the very beginning that the blessing is supposed to go to Jacob, and yet he spent his entire life trying to thwart what God is doing, pushing his agenda, right? Their implication that, that he's self-indulgent and selfish. Then you have Rebecca. His wife, who's a manipulator and a liar, she's got her favorite, he's got his favorite, you know, and and all of this mess. Then there's Esau, who would sell his birthright as the oldest in the family for a bowl of soup. In other words, he's horribly selfish and self-indulgent, just like his dad. He's unwise. He marries two Hittite women later in the story and introduces profound unbelief into this family who alone among the peoples of the earth worships the true God. And then... The icing on the cake, there's Jacob, who's a liar and a cheater. As he comes out of the womb, he grabs his brother's heel, and he went throughout the rest of his life grasping after things that belong to others. And so what we come to in the middle of this is there is no likable character in this entire bunch. 
There's no hero to be found in these stories. No bright spot in the midst of the darkness. They are a complete, I think the, the, the technical word is, they are a complete and utter train wreck. And yet, it is this dysfunctional, selfish, sinful family through which God intends to save the world because he works through the weak, not the strong, through the sinful, through the broken, not through the put together and the righteous and the responsible. It's grace. Now, if that doesn't win you to this idea, pay attention that in both of these stories, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's something upside down that happens. In both of them, it is the secondborn and not the firstborn that received the blessing. So it's Jacob, not Esau, and then it's Ephraim, not Manasseh. It's completely upside down. And I said it last week, the firstborn son in this culture was the one in whom the family put all of their hopes. He got the largest portion of the inheritance because he was responsible for, after his father's death, for providing and taking care and carrying on the family business and so forth. So practically, the firstborn would have been honored and preferred above his younger brothers and his siblings, okay? It would just been a matter of fact that everybody was used to and dealt with, and it's just the way it was. And that is why... When Joseph, you notice, brings Manasseh and Ephraim to Jacob in Genesis 48, did you, did you, re, did you listen carefully? He intentionally, because he knows his father's getting old, and old people do weird things sometimes, and, and he can't see very well, so he wants to make sure it goes the way it's supposed to. And he, we're told he puts Manasseh, his firstborn, on his left towards Jacob's right hand because the right hand was the place of power. The right hand is the symbol of authority and strength. And so Joseph wants and expects Manasseh to be on, on, on Jacob's right side so that he'll get the firstborn blessing. He's helping his dad, right, by, not, by putting the boys in the right order, and then, he, and then he's coming to Jacob. He's bringing them to Jacob, and he's saying, okay. And then here's what Jacob does. Jacob is sitting right here, and you can just imagine this, this pretty old guy who's half blind, and his son brings his two grandchildren to him, and he means for him just to kind of put his hands on top of him, and here's what Jacob does. <laughs> And Joseph freaks, by the way, right? He takes his dad's hand off of him and says, no, 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 you did that wrong. And, 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 and Jacob says, no, my son. No, I know something you don't. And when the writer of Hebrews surveyed Jacob's life, this, that moment, that moment where it was set up for, for Manasseh to get the firstborn blessing and for Ephraim to get the leftovers, and Jacob did this, this deal right here. It was that, it's fascinating to me. In Hebrews 11, of all of the things in Jacob's life that the writer of Hebrews could have chosen, it was that event in his life that he used there in Hebrews to highlight as an example of Jacob's faith. And what we see is that between Genesis 27 and Genesis 48, Jacob has experienced a spiritual revolution, and Jeff's going to talk about that next week. But here we see Jacob finally gets it. At the end of his life, he realizes that all of life is grace, and he intentionally, verse 20 of Genesis 48, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. He subverts the order. Manasseh's the firstborn. He should go before Ephraim, right? That's the way the culture worked. That's the way it happened. And yet, he crosses his hands, and he intentionally puts Ephraim before Manasseh. Now, why? Why? And in Romans 9, which is our call to worship, Paul puts it this way. He says, before they were born or had done, done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, God told Rebekah, the older, 
Esau will serve the younger Jacob. In other words, the Lord has a purpose for doing things this way. The younger, not the older, the weak, not the strong, for a purpose. And the purpose is to teach us that it is not our works, but God's works. It is not our strength, but his strength. That we have work to do, but that ultimately, even in the work he's called us to, he's the hero, not us. And in the culture at the time, everybody believed things get done through certain people. Boys, not girls. Firstborn boys, not the younger, their younger brothers. The wealthy people, the smart people, the beautiful people, the strong people, the savvy people, whatever it might be. That these are the people that really matter, right? These, that's, that, that's who's blessed, right? The first are first, the last are last. But when God works in the world... And this is what Jacob's beginning to understand. He deliberately chooses the one the world says is is nothing in order to get things done. Every time in Genesis, every single time, he chooses the younger son over the older. He chooses Abel, not Cain. He chooses Isaac, not every generation, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, right? Scheming Jacob, not strong, charming, dynamic, charismatic Esau. He chooses Ephraim. Not Manasseh. Why does he? Why you know? Why does he do this? Who does he believe, and who does he bring his salvation and healing into the world through? Well, it's not through fertile, beautiful Hagar, but barren, old, grumpy Sarah. Right? It's not. It's not the beauty queen Rachel, but plain Leah. It's everywhere, everywhere. Go into the New Testament, read the Gospels. Every time there's a prostitute and a religious leader, or a tax collector who's a fraud and a traitor. In a Bible scholar, it is the prostitute and the tax collector that are put ahead of the religious guy. And Jesus himself says, truly I say to you, he's talking to the religious people in Matthew 21, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. What? Why? He has to consistently do this over and over again to teach us uh, the lesson that he is wanting to teach us from the beginning of this book to the end, and that is that salvation is by grace. It is what God does for us, not what we do for him. And the only way to get into God's salvation is to admit that you're weak, that you've blown it, and that you need help. And here's what that means. See, that blessing that we all need, the blessing even for some of us that's there, but it hasn't really come home to our heart yet, right? That sense of God has called me to the, God has... I mean, what, how would it change your life for you if you're a mom, if you're a stay-at-home mom, or if you, you know, you're a school teacher, or whatever it is? How would it change your life to live your life with the assurance of divine authorization for the work and the promise that He's going to come along and help you? And if that's what we need, see that blessing. Here's what this means: you don't earn the blessing by being strong or good or successful. It comes by resting. In God's grace. You don't say, I've got to get my act together or God's going to give up on me. No, what, in reality, it's the moment when you realize you don't have your act together that, and, and you can be a complete mess. It's that moment that the blessing comes and you experience it. So how can we do that? How can we live there in the mess and still believe that God's going to come and work through people like us rather than dressing up and hiding and doing these things? How can we live there? How can we practically live our lives in that place. Well, let me, let me, I have good news. Jesus Christ, very God of very God, is called in the Bible the firstborn of all creation. He is the only begotten Son of the Father, which means that Jesus lived 
from all eternity in a state of firstborn blessing. The father doted on his son and poured love into his son's heart. Uh, we, we, we have um, 15 years, well, not that many. We have 10 years of pictures on my, on my computer, and I never look at them. And the reason I never look at them is because I look at these pictures of my children when they were younger, and I remember all the, you know, them crawling up into my lap and all the wonderful things that we've done as a family, and it literally hurts me. Anybody else experience that? Just a sense of I love them so much, it's painful. Right? And so I literally, it hurts so bad, I literally can't even look at pictures. I don't know why we have them. I never look at them. I can't because I, I just, I lose it. Right? Can I, can I suggest something to you? That hurt, that, that loving, loving my kids so much that it hurts, that is the dimmest hint of what the father saw in his son from all eternity. And yet what we're told is that he left the firstborn blessing and he came to earth, he died upon a cross, and on the cross what happened is, is he lost that firstborn blessing. Why? In Galatians 3, the Apostle Paul says that on the cross, Jesus became a curse for us, redeeming us so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us through Jesus Christ. Now, did you hear that? Let me say it again. That Jesus became a curse for us, redeeming us so that the blessing given to Abraham and Jacob might come to us through Jesus Christ. That that phrase landed on me like a ton of dynamite this week. If your faith is in Jesus, then the blessing that you see here is yours. The divine authorization and the promise of divine empowerment for your life is yours. All of the promises of God are yes and amen for you in Christ. No matter who you are or what is a part of your past or what mistakes you've made or what sins or weaknesses you may be prone to, you've got the firstborn blessing. And the gospel promise for us this morning is because Jesus Christ dressed up like us and got the curse that we deserve. So now when we believe in him, we can be clothed like him and get the firstborn blessing. But what does that mean? Can I make two practical applications for us and then I'm done, I promise. Just two really quick applications. The first is, uh, you're not a Christian unless you have an experiential knowledge of this firstborn blessing. It's not enough for you to say, in theory, I know I'm a son or a daughter of God. What it means to become a Christian, in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul says that he has sent his spirit into our hearts, crying from our hearts, Abba, Father. So the, so the goal of God's work, if it's still theoretical knowledge for you, you may be close, but you're not there yet. What makes somebody a Christian is a subjective, experiential knowledge of the love that God the Father has for them and the blessing of the firstborn that rests on their life. Sinclair Ferguson, who was my seminary, one of my seminary professors, put it this way. He said, in Galatians 4, Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit, which brings us into a deep-seated persuasion that we really are the sons of God. It is, it is uh, in fact, that, that God has adopted us into his family, and then the Spirit assures us this is true and enables us to live in the enjoyment of such a rich spiritual blessing. He sends his Spirit into our hearts, listen to this, bringing us the deep spiritual and psychological security that rests on the objective fact that our sins are forgiven and we belong to the Lord. Do you have a deep spiritual, psychological security 
in the love of God for you and his promise to come. His authorization of your life and the work that he's given you to do. And his promise to come and help you. You're not a Christian until you have an experiential knowledge of the first, until you feel it in your heart and it brings you joy. That overcomes all your discouragements and your pain. But secondly, we have to come back to mission because I started talking about mission. Remember, God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, I bless you to make you a blessing. In other words, that's the, I bless you and the reason for my blessing you is to turn you into a blessing. And, and so this is the key for us to really begin to be able to live the way God intends for us to live. I don't know if you're reading along with us in our community Bible reading, but twice this week in John's gospel, in John chapter 5 and in John chapter 12, Jesus has talked about what made him different from the crowds. And it came down to this. He says that the crowds and most of us are living for the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from God, but that his heart was full of God's love. In other words, their glory starved, their blessing starved, but his heart was full of God's love and blessing towards him. And, and what, what he means to teach us is that if your heart is glory starved, in other words, if you don't have a real, deep, abiding sense of God's love for you and the firstborn blessing upon your life, then when you go out and do nice things for people, you'll not be doing them to bless them. You'll be using them to fill up the emptiness inside of you. And so the goal to be a blessing, right, to live putting the needs of others ahead of your own, completely free of any self-concern, Okay, which means no more hiding, no more posturing, no more living in fear of people's opinions about us. Free to say yes, free to say no in response to God's calls we've been talking about. There's only one way you can do that. You have to know, you have to really know, you have to deeply know that in Christ Jesus, you already have the glory that comes from God. Because he lost the firstborn blessing, it's now yours. In Christ, you have it. Not because of anything you've done. You've not earned it. You don't deserve it. It's all of grace. And the reason that's so important is, if it's all of grace, then it can never be taken away from you. And then, see, then, when the, when the, re, when the deep, true, real sense of whatever tr- you know, direction your life is living, that there is divine authorization for that work, and there's the promise. Remember what God said to Abraham. Abraham, if, if I mess up, I'll take care of it. If you mess up, I'm going, my, even my sins uh, don't thwart God's working through me to accomplish his purposes, right? If you sense that, his divine authorization and the promise of his divine promise to help, then, you're, then, then, then and only then can you really begin to go about doing the work he's called you to. That's when the mission becomes real. That's when you're free to really say yes and to say no according to his call. And that's what he ultimately hopes. See, it's possible. It's possible to live in the kind of blessing that we have here. Even if you didn't get it from your parents. Even if there's never been a time where, where you know, you can, it can still be real upon your hearts if we turn to Jesus in faith this morning. And so that's what we're going to do as we pray. And then Terry's going to come and lead us in a couple of songs. So let's pray and ask. Father. Thank you that we, uh, we are told in the scriptures to call you Father, that you're not just God. Far off and distant from us, you are a loving Father. And just like all fathers who love their children, you long to put your hands on us and bless us. And so we pray that as we, in these last few moments of the service, sing these songs together, that what would happen in our hearts is that we would sense, that, we, that you, by the Spirit, would give us a real sense of the depth of the love that you have for us.
And that the good news of the gospel will come home to our hearts that because Jesus clothed himself uh, in, our, um, in our flesh and blood and was treated as we deserve to be treated on the cross, so now we can be clothed in him and be treated as he has deserved to be treated. The firstborn blessing that was his from all eternity can be ours. And so would you uh, give us faith to, to uh, reach out and to grab a hold of that. And may it change the way we live our lives. May we have a sense of your authorization. And may we be confident and rest in your promise to empower us for the work you've given us to do. And may it change the way we go about that work. And may we be fruitful uh, for your glory. That's our ultimate hope. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul refers to the church as the church of the firstborn. We are the church of the firstborn, which obviously means we are the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also means if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ... Uh, then every single one of us is a firstborn son. That no matter who you are, you have the blessing of the firstborn by virtue of your faith in Jesus. And so that means that when I raise my hands over you, this is the promise. Uh, that where you are living in response to God's call, that you have divine authorization for that work, and you have the promise of his empowerment in your life for that work, to even overcome your sins and struggles, to accomplish the good work he's called you to. And so, receive this then as a blessing as a benediction, as good words over your life, uh, to call out from you uh, and to commission you to the great work that God is sending you from this place to do today. So receive the benediction then. Here's the blessing of the Father uh, that is yours in Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.